Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. All right, so welcome back to the Pink Tax Podcast. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Lindsay Teds. Thank you for joining us, Lindsay. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We're really excited to be talking to Dr. Teds today. Uh, she is a policy researcher. Um, and Lindsay, are you located here in Calgary or are you out of BC? I can't quite remember. Are you well? <laughs> I, I have my own t- hard time to remember it yet. No, I moved to Calgary in May of 2018. But yes, I was at the University of Victoria for 10 years before that. Awesome. So with that, I think maybe I'll pass it over to Tara. She's going to start with a couple of questions we have today. Just to start, tell us a little bit about your work and and kind of what drew you to it and what keeps you going. That's a really good question. I'm a, I'm a kind of a meandering academic. I got my PhD in economics um, 15 years ago. That kills me when I say that these days. Um, and, you know, I originally started out, I, I, you know, I got a job in a department of economics at a university, and I was having to, in order to get tenure, research in areas um, that it would be considered, you know, non-risky, everybody agrees on. I mean, that's how you get tenure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very unhappy with the research that I was doing. It just seemed so off, just, just so irrelevant. Nobody was going to read it. Um, you know, it just had no impact. And so I took what is actually considered to be a big risky step in my third year on the tenure track. I said, that's it. It's enough. I'm going to write what I want, when I want, where I want, however I want. Um, and I'm going to see where it takes me. Um, and so uh, you know, I moved much more into public policy. I had to pair up with researchers that could help me make that leap because economics is, you know, doesn't teach you how to write for normal people. And yeah, I just, and now I just, I just go, I go wherever. I mean, my general area is, is tax policy and economic policy, but I define that very broadly. Um, and I work in lots of different areas from, you know, stock options and um, uh, insider disclosure to tax evasion and tax non-compliance. I'm currently working on um, the home sharing, uh, as well as a big project for the BC government on um, basic income and income support. So, uh, municipal public finance is also a big area of mine. So, I'm I'm a I'm a breadth researcher. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and knowing all of that, I think we probably have. So, um, so many questions for you outside of the ones we already sent you earlier. Because, um, yeah, I think uh, Janine more so than myself, but is a bit of a, a tax wonk, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I, I spent some time in, uh, in public practice. I was a tax specialist. So I am familiar with certain parts of the act, but uh, it's definitely a very complex issue. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, but also very interesting. And and it, it's kind of fun to take actually a look at the tax system through a feminist lens because, boy, you start seeing things 
that people just don't think about when they think about taxes. So I was going to ask you the first question on that, but I think this will lead into it. So what what piece of tax do you think is sort of the the biggest issue for women these days? Um, What do you think is, yeah? Well, I, you know, it, it looking at, I mean, there's the personal income tax system and consumption taxes and, and, and municipal property taxes and user fees and all of this sort of, of stuff. And I'm starting, despite the fact that I've, I've written, well, I mean, all academics get reviewer number two who tells us that we have to say things that are the norm within economics. But I, I, I think about this whole, this whole thing holistically, and I've been really starting to, to, to challenge some of my own perceptions that I've been trained in economics, like consumption tax. You know, we talk about how consumption tax is completely efficient and we should prefer it over everything. But like the name of your podcast says, women pay more for things because we're women, which means we will pay more in a consumption tax. And is that efficient? Is that equitable? How do we start thinking about the things that women spend their money on and what the prices are charged? And what does that mean for efficient taxation? Um, user fees in municipal public finance. Women consume more services than men do. So the more we start putting user fees onto essential services, the bigger the burden falls onto women. And it falls onto our day-to-day lives, like public transit. Women are much more likely to consume public transit, and we're most likely going to have very complicated routes to and from work including dropping kids off at daycare and school, having to run errands back and forth. So user fee policies and how we price transit actually matters a lot for whether or not we can participate in the economy. Um, And that is not um, the standard model of of either a consumption tax or or a user fee. And and these are areas that I've been sort of kind of picking away at. It's mostly in my brain. Someday it will get down on paper when when I get my other papers done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I would love to read that if you um, or when you get that down on paper. That's not anything that I had ever thought of with the consumption tax uh, model, but it makes so much mm. sense. I love it. Well, oh. one of the things <laughs> I'm going to start thinking about that definitely. Uh, the thing that drew me to you though on on Twitter and your blog was when you um, highlighted recently, and I think it was just this past fall um, when the Conservatives were running uh, for our national election with um, their tax proposal for uh, maternity and paternity benefits. Um, so I just wanted to hear your thoughts straight from you. Um, can you give us a kind of a brief overview about how the benefits are currently taxed, how it influences when people uh, plan to have children? And do you think it's equitable right now? Could changes increase or, or decrease the inequality that we see in high and low income earners while they take their uh, maternity and parental benefits? Sure. Uh, That's a huge topic. So hopefully I'll get through all of them, but feel free to remind me of all of them. I think the first thing there's, uh, so in terms of taxation of maternity leave benefits, so um, maternity leave and parental benefits are paid out of employment insurance and we all pay pay premiums, right? Uh, Those of us who are T4 employees, right? They come right off our, our paycheck, but they come off our pre-tax earnings. 
so that's the money that goes into EI is money that hasn't been taxed. So what then that means is when we receive incomes from those benefits, i.e. when we go on maternity leave and parental leave and we qualify for benefits, that income is taxable income and it's taxed at your marginal tax rate. Okay, and so the taxes that you owe really depend on the income that you have earned prior to your birth months. And so just as a side segue, um, births in Canada are not randomly distributed. <laughs> well, births in any country are not randomly distributed throughout the month. Um, women are actually very strategic, especially those that are planning um, a birth in timing their birth. And birth seasonality in Canada right now, fall is our peak birth season. So August, September, October, these are our real peak months of birth, which means in order to qualify for parental leave and, uh, well, paid maternity and parental leave, we've already earned, you know, seven or eight months worth of income, which means we're much more likely to be paying a high marginal, higher marginal tax rate on our our benefits than um, than than we think about. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think you know I've seen this. I don't have children, but a couple of my coworkers have you know started to go on leave, and they've been really worried about what their tax bill is going to be when they're coming back from maternity leave because you know they're receiving this money and then they've already paid taxes on the income they've earned in the year, and um, then they owe a whole bunch of money come yeah. next April. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they owe a whole bunch of money because the withholding, so this is where, you know, when we get our maternity leave and parental leave benefits, taxes are withheld on them, but they're only withheld at the lowest statutory tax rate, which is 15%. So if you're in that low tax bracket, you're okay. So if your total income over the year is less than, I think, I think it's around 45000 now, you won't owe any taxes. But any woman who has earned more than that over the year, the withholding on their maternity leave and, and parental leave benefits is too low to hit their, their actual tax liability. And it can be quite shocking because it's typically a couple of thousand dollars that you're going to owe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's not like, again, I don't have children, but I can't imagine having a child being cheap. So, you know, you're no, already having no, more expenses. No. And then you're going to owe thousands of dollars on, on your tax bill. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's not cheap. And it's, uh, I, this is one of these things that is just not well discussed. I mean, you can go through, and I have, what are they called now? ESRDC, the, 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 the Services Canada, all of where they have all of their information. Um, in order to get down to this issue of whether withholding is going to match your tax liability, you've got to actually get well in behind and be strategically looking for this information in order for it to make any sense to you. Yeah, and I mean, as a tax professional, or I guess ex-tax professional, the CRA website and the Income Tax Act, not uh -huh. the easiest things to read. Yeah. Well, and I find that... <laughs> And I find that those two departments don't really chat or share information. So as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Ted's the um, ERSDC or whatever that department is called that holds Service Canada, they're not related to CRA. So mm -hmm. the folks that you're submitting your taxes to are, the, are different than the folks that are actually withholding that tax and paying your benefits. It's this function of birth months that 
that is really important to understanding what this is because in order to qualify for maternity leave and parental leave benefits, I mean, this is already women who are in a certain class of jobs um, and they are more likely to be facing a tax liability that's higher than the withholding um, that, that occurs. And then, yes, you owe that money while you're still, still on uh, maternity leave or parental leave and you are at an incredibly low salary compared to what, what you're used to. It can be very hard to plan. Yeah. And I'm curious, Dr. Ted's, if, what your take is on, you know, should those maternity benefits be taxed or should they be tax-free? I'm not sure if you've, you know, looked at what other jurisdictions around the world are doing, um, but I'd be curious what you think the, I guess maybe the solution is to this. Yeah, it, I mean, it's complicated. I, I, it, and I have to admit, this is one of these things I've been noodling over in the back of my head. Because you think of long-term disability. Uh, long-term disability, which is typically, again, an employee benefit, um, we have uh, moved to a system where we pay the premiums for long-term disability out of after-tax income so that when we actually get those long-term disability benefits, which is going to be a pretty tough time in your life that they, they, you could, you actually get them tax free. So that's one way to do it, right? We could switch the way that we think about um, uh, paying into, into benefits, pay the after tax income. Therefore we don't have to worry about what our tax liability is when we accrue these benefits. We can also look to strike pay as a model. Strike pay, very fascinating. Um, are any of our funds that go into union dues go in as um, pre-tax income, uh, but any strike pay that we get out of those union dues is also tax-free. So there are examples that we have where we can think about a different kind of model, but of course, as soon as you start thinking about this, who wins and who loses, really becomes a very complicated issue to, to think about. So instead, you can look at what was in the liberal election platform this year. So they're proposing one, um, EI benefits are going to be fully tax-free, not the conservative model, which was, of course, a non-refundable tax credit. They're also looking at removing parental, parental and maternity benefits from the EI system so that everybody can get maternity leave and parental benefits. They don't have to worry about, do they have enough um, hourly earnings? Um, do they, have they earned enough uh, income? How much, how much income is going to be replaced? We don't have to worry about all of this. We just take it out of the system and we provide, which is in fact the basic income for new parents. Yeah, and I, I was hoping that you would bring that up because I was wondering how a maternity and parental basic income would affect sort of um, the inequality that we see when folks have kids. And I mean, I haven't dug into this a lot. I'm sure you know more of it, but I'm kind of seeing that we're doing a disservice to the lower and the lower middle income earners where they're sort of already on the cusp and then we mm -hmm. cut their pay by 55% and basically penalize them for having children. Um, so I was wondering, how do you think sort of maternity and parental basic income would work so that we could emphasize the more vulnerable or, or marginalized group of parents? 
Well, I mean, removing it from the EI system is the best thing you can do to to benefit uh, marginalized and vulnerable um, people because they are most likely not to be working the working the the hours and earning the income necessary to to, to derive any benefits from a maternity leave or parental leave system within the EI system, right? So you're you're already kind of doing that. Now what we have to do, and this is this is going to be a long conversation, which I think was why 2021 2022 was considered to be the implementation date of this. What are we going to, how, what, what is the basic income? How are we going to make sure that uh, everybody sort of um, is okay under this system? I mean, we'd are, the, the proposal sort of floats, you know, pairing some benefits in with the Canada Child Benefit, and the Canada Child Benefit is also going to be topped up for the first year of a child's life. Um, so it's just a matter of, you know, like, what is the income we should give new parents, um, what is the income that we should give new moms, um, and what is the income we should give new, new parents. Those are all different clusters of, of people who we have to think about when we're designing this benefit package. And I think one of the, this will lead into my next question. So when people are talking about things like basic income or even funding public services, especially in the times we see now in Alberta, I find Mm -hmm. that it's always Mm -hmm. framed as at odds with uh, success of private industry or with economic growth. And all of a sudden we just, we don't have enough money to even have these discussions is sometimes how I feel it's framed. Uh, oh, what was Alberta? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, look, I understand Alberta's going through um, some very challenging economic times, but at the same time, its 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 tax rates are the lowest in the land. Lots of room for uh, for tax rates to increase without there being huge economic impacts. And the thing I think that uh, people probably watch my head explode on a regular basis on Twitter that drives me bonkers is we constantly talk about the economic effects of taxes, and yet we never talk about the economic benefits of spending. It's government money is not lit on fire. It might feel that way sometimes, but it is not. It is not lit on fire. And if you, if you, really, if you really care about economic growth, you have to care about both taxes and spending. And sometimes, believe it or not, Spending that money can lead to more economic growth than the decrease in taxes. Like take the corporate tax decrease, right? We're going from 12% down to 8, 8%, 1% a year. It's not going to pay for itself, right? So that's sort of the word down in the United States, right? Donald Trump promised it would pay for itself. It's not going to pay for itself. At least the Alberta government didn't go that far, but they said it would partially pay for itself. And that is, in fact, true. But you want to know what spending pays for itself? Universal child care. That pays for itself more than dollar for dollar. And so the fact that we're not talking about that, and in fact, this government is taking aim at, at, at a child care pilot, which did have some problems and needed to be revamped, and they can look at BC on how to do that. But the fact that they're thinking about child care is not an economic program, it just drives me crazy. Yeah, I, you can't see it, but I just did a happy dance when you said that. Um, you know, being a mom and, you know, taking longer time away and doing all that stuff and then trying to move into a career that 
left me with a little bit more time at home, I was, uh, you know, a mom then going out and putting my resumes out and trying to get a new job and everything like that. Trying to find new work is a job in and of itself. Taking care of a child is a full-time job in and of itself. I, I don't know how you can even look for a job without childcare, let alone have a job without childcare. I'm of the same mind. We're just getting more folks into, in, into work and, um, yeah, driving our and that is, so, yeah. well, and people who want to work should be a- able to work. I don't know why we always think about the fact that women should stay home and who cares what their their interests are. You know, I like working. I want to go to work, and you know, I have a lot of value in society. But some 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 righty people out there will will feel otherwise. But you know, I I I do bring value to it, and you know, we have to we have to recognize. Well, I mean, let's go back. We used to have a saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Somehow we've now moved that into, it takes an isolated family to raise a child. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we have to remember children are our future labor force. They aren't just a, um, a, 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 a cost around society's neck. The more we invest in the, the, the upkeep and, and upbringing of children, the more economic growth we have in the future. So we have two issues here. It's, it's ensuring that parents can go out there and make choices as opposed to being constrained in their choices. And then we've got to make sure that we're creating a, a productive labor force for the future. And why people don't see this, I don't know. I, I, it, like, where do they think adults come from? <laughs> Because they don't come out of your uterus that way, right? (laughs) Into being a productive member of society and then him not sticking his fingers in his mouth and dying from the coronavirus, right? So I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no. That's those ones that I just can't, I can't, my head just can't handle this. And I, one of the things that kind of drives me wild and I, on Twitter and other Facebook and whatnot is people saying um, you shouldn't have kids if you can't afford them. And I, and I think, you know, obviously there's a lot wrong with that statement, but I do think people kind of miss the mark on, you know, who's going to be your, your Starbucks barista, who's going to be your doctor when you're old, who's going to fly your planes. It, it is that next generation coming up behind us. Well, yeah. and who's going to pay into your CPP pension? I mean, this is, this is not a self, funded pension plan. If you want to retire with a CPP pension, you had better support a highly productive, educated workforce for the future because they're the ones who are going to pay your benefit. I, I have this argument with people um, so often, especially with um, funding into CPP and then with the argument that for whatever reason, mums in a a heteronormative relationship, mums should be the one that are are staying home and raising the child. Like the best, I've heard it so many times, the best person to raise your child is you as the mother. They never mean the dad. They mean the mother, which I don't understand. (laughs) I want my kid to have so many people in her life that she can trust, right? I I don't want her to be solely dependent on me. That just seems like I'm uh, making so many mistakes and creating this codependent being. Yeah. Well, well and that's, this is, this is my point, right? It takes a village. It, mm-hmm. it, it, there's so many different influences. And, and it, when I was pregnant with a boy and we'd never had any boys in my family other than the dads that were, that were around, I read a whole, a lot of um, neuropsychology books to sort of get an understanding of brain development, which is such a big, important part of figuring out how to raise your child. 
And one of the things that happens, particularly with boys, is as their brains develop and their needs change, who they have as a role model change. So the mom is the preferred person for about the first five years. Then they, they turn to a dad or a dad figure where they start getting some of their cues on what it means to be a boy slash a man. And then once they're in their early teens, they're looking for an external role model, whether that be an athlete or a teacher or something like that. And so it made it very clear that no, no we don't develop in isolation. We develop in mm -hmm. community. We develop in society. And we all play a role in the development of children who are our future workforce. I'm going to move into the, the next question, though, even though I could talk about that for days. And, but I think it kind of mm. flows in as well. So when you've been working um, with public policy and everything like that, how much do you think the uh, notion of privilege and the systems of patriarchy and racism shape the public policy decisions that are made in Canada? Uh, hugely. I mean, it, I, and, you know, some people talk about how the older you get, the more conservative you, you become. I, I've become the opposite. <laughs> I have too. My mom always told me that she's probably going to listen to this and shake her head, but yeah. she said I would become more conservative and I've got completely gone the opposite way. Me too. Yeah. I've got, and a big reason why I've gone the opposite way is I, it, it's, it's a story that actually matters. So when I was in, in my um, late teens and early twenties and in university, I was doing a political science degree. And I remember I had to read John Stuart Mill and I had to do an oral, oral defense with, with my professor and he, you know, he was asking questions about, you know, things like, do you think feminism needs to exist? Well, here I was, I was 20 years old, I was in university. Um, I'd never really, despite the fact that I had experienced discrimination, I didn't know it. And I said, no, you don't need feminism. You just work hard enough. <laughs> People will know you're competent and, you know, it's all fine. And I remember the look he gave me because it, 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 it's burned into my skull. And he said something along the lines of, well, I look forward to hearing your views in 20 years. And, <laughs> and then I went into the, into the workforce. And I, I remember my, my very first real job, not because I worked all the way, all the way through. But my first real job after my master's degree, uh, I went to work at the Department of Finance in Ottawa. And I was being shown around, you know, here we are, we're in economic development. And I'm being, you know, I'm introduced to people. And there was like 80 people on the floor. All of the women um, were, all of the, all of the admin people were women, but there was only two economic analysts that were women. And that was the first time it hit me of, whoa. <laughs> so am I a token woman? Am I a competent woman? Like, what the hell is going on here? We have a government department of 80 people in economic development. Women are taking economics like never before. Where are they? And that was sort of my first moment of realizing that there, there's obviously barriers or discrimination. And throughout my career, I have encountered some real adversarial um, aspects that I've had in any adversarial relationship I've had in the workplace has been with a man who wants to keep me in my place. And that is a real big problem. I just kind of want to jump off on that because I've had some discussions on Twitter and elsewhere about why women aren't 
as represented in, um, you know, either high, higher income earning roles or roles that require higher levels of education and all that kind of thing, even when we see in certain industries that the graduation rate for, for those jobs are the same across males and females. I'm just wondering, like, what your take is on it, because a lot of people seem to say, well, they just, women just take themselves out of those careers. And I, I, yeah, since you brought it up. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I constantly watch, you know, over, over the last 20 years, I've watched women being bullied out of their position. I see workplaces that don't take harassment and bullying and, um, uh, you know, inappropriate leadership, um, seriously. So that's, that's one thing that drives women out. Another thing that drives women out is, of course, you know, flexibility and constraints. A lot of men are going to phrase some of the things that we face as a choice. We choose to work fewer hours so that we can take care of our kids. We choose to have a flexible job and therefore have lower incomes because we have these caregiving responsibilities. This isn't a choice. Society has thrust this upon us, and it's a constraint that we face. And um, we absolutely have to, I mean, one, we need to get, get men much more involved in caregiving, and it is happening. Slowly but surely, it is happening. Um, but unfortunately, these men are working for older men who never had to take those child care responsibilities. And so now millennial men are being judged like us Gen X women were for the same reasons. Um, you know, we can be productive in the workplace and work seven hours a day and then go home. But there's this some of these dudes have this idea that if you're not working 12 hours a day, right, you're, you're not contributing and, and you're lazy and, and, and what have you. There really need, needs to be a huge mental shift in what it means to, to work, raise families, have a life. Uh, you know, families are, can be defined quite broadly. I wouldn't just include, you know, people who are married and have kids and what have you. You know, um, a lot of people who are not married have families that are friends um, and support them. And, you know, this whole idea that, that, that the more hours we work, the more productive we are is not borne out in research. And, and certainly given the productivity problems we're facing in Canada, it's very clear. So we need better leadership. We need, we need, we need a better, better supports. We need men more involved in, in caregiving and we have to stop calling caregiving uh, leisure time. It's unpaid work. Uh, and it needs to be acknowledged as, as such. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And I think, you know, I've seen some of the Scandinavian countries, or I think it's Sweden or Finland, I can't recall, but they're moving towards that, you know, six hour work day or four hour, four day work weeks. And I think, you know, I know I'm more productive when I'm, you know, really focused on a task for a couple hours and then, you know, take a break and walk away as opposed to back in my days in, in public practice, it was exactly that. How many hours can you bill? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I rile on about at work, stop sending me emails, stop inviting me to, pe- to, to meetings. I, I'd be vastly more productive if you leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of things there. And, and you know, the, the one thing that I would say is in order for these issues in public policy to come out, we need more diversity in public policy because 
it, I can read stuff about racism and kind of go like, yeah, I've seen it, I understand it, but I haven't lived it. The lived experience in informing public policy is actually really, really important. And that's, we absolutely have to support more diversity, not just in economics, but in public policy to get those voices heard so that we can make better public policy. A hundred percent. And again, I think I think it was like a Scandinavian country that they just brought like a whole bunch of young women into uh, leadership roles. So I think they are a great place to look to start to see how we're able to get more diversity across, obviously not just gender, but race and uh, sexual orientation as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it would be, I, I, I really enjoy working with a diverse group so I don't have to roll my eyes as much at the old white man. <laughs> <laughs> we do that frequently. Don't worry. <laughs> I know my colleagues are not going to listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should send them the link. Just here you go. (laughs) Well, and, and so I'll leave this into the next question, but um, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately and talking with my coworkers about how we can get these ideas to kind of the folks that need to hear them. You know, we do a lot of talk on Twitter and we say, you know, it's not for the person that we're arguing with, but it's for everyone who's watching, but I'm wondering, you know, with where we're at in terms of media and we have concerns over fake news and it just seems like in the last few elections that I've watched in Canada it's all our public policy conversations have been tried to either get down to 140 characters or a nice little soundbite something that's catchy and so I'm wondering if we could kind of have a discussion about how do we get these ideas out there and how do we start to encourage thoughtful policy conversations with all Canadians? Wow. Good, good, good question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess in some ways, okay. One of the things, I mean, you're never, you're never going to convince partisans. Partisans are going to partisan. doesn't matter whether they're green, orange, blue, or red. And I'm sure there's other colors, but those are the, the four that I can think of. Um, partisans are going to partisan and there's nothing that you can do about it. But what I do find um, that there, people talk about Twitter as being a cesspool. I don't see it. I see, and maybe that's because I block and mute on a, on a fairly heavy basis now. I didn't used to, but I do now. Um, I see a lot of people who are eager for information to, to understand these, these issues. And the, the other thing that I do see is a lot of the policy decision makers um, also watch certain people and what they say, and they do internalize some of those things. So, you know, despite the fact that academia dismisses the influence of social media and blogging and writing op-eds, those are the three things that have the most influence on public policy. It's not publishing a paper in the quarterly journal of economics because nobody's going to read it because nobody's going to be able to understand it. But the, the, this, this, what is it people call it? It's democratization of information um, and being able to communicate it to normal everyday people who don't have economics degrees. I actually think there's a, there's a lot of merit there and I don't think we should dismiss it so readily, but yeah, the fake news, I mean, yeah, the last year, I mean, hopefully the conservatives will get their heads out of their asses pretty soon and stop saying things that are just so unbelievably fake news. Like when Lisa Wright went after statistics Canada, I mean, that was just ridiculous and repugnant and completely uncalled for. 
Um, and those are the kinds of things that we should we should call people out because fake news is actually really easy for people like me and my fellow academics to spot. Um, and we can provide that information to help them other people to understand why what they're saying maybe has a soup song of uh, knowledge or fact to it, but in, in its entirety is actually false. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think on that, you know, the whole democratization of information, and I'm going to be critical of the liberals here for a second, but I do think they don't do a great job of this. I know during the last election, I had a couple of people pop up on my Instagram because I was talking about uh, policies and, you know, what the t different tax rates meant. There's a lot of small business owners that thought that their tax rate was going to get lowered from 12% to 8%. But mm -hmm. in most of those situations, those people are under the small business uh, rules. So it, like they would have to earn in their business over a half a million dollars for that even to take effect. And they just had no idea that that was even what it was going after. They just heard lower taxes in corporations and they had a corporation and assumed- but not the that right that, kind of corporation. <laughs> exactly. Just assumed that that would mean that their taxes were going down. Taxes are so simple yet so complicated, you know? <laughs> I do know. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I'll deviate a little bit from that example because, you know, I was recently at a big workshop where we were talking about, you know, people responding to their marginal effective tax rates, right? You're always going to have economists talking about marginal effective tax rates and what have you. And so what the work that I'm doing with uh, Jillian Petit at, for as part of the BC Basic Income Grant is we're, we've been looking at the whole system and looking about all of these programs and all of these taxes and refundable tax credits and non-refundable tax credits and we've been mapping it out and you get to this point where you sit there and you say to economists okay look at this system complexity who do you think is responding to the one marginal tax rate this tiny little kink that's in this graph of all of these different expenditures and taxes that they're facing. Do you honestly believe they're responding to that one and not their overall curve? And do people really have the information to be able to respond in that way? And so I'm, despite the fact that I'm an economist, and I'm supposed to care about, you know, marginal taxes. I don't think people have enough information of the tax system to be able to respond. And I think what you're talking about is exactly that thing. You know, people, people, people just don't have enough knowledge to know when people, when governments are talking about things, what exactly that they're talking about. I don't think, I don't think governments do it purposely because you can look at all, all stripes and they are horrible in their, in their communications on taxes. Um, it, but I think I, I, this, this knowledge is important and we've designed a system that no no one person can have knowledge of and that's wrong and bad and we we need to address that but as you saw with the small business taxation there we were trying to make a reform in a small little tiny area and i mean that turns into this whole big through-through-all and so imagine, you know, taking everybody's cookies away by reforming the tax system as opposed to, you know, cookies for the top 1%. These are very complicated issues. And it just would be great if everybody understood taxes, but um, we don't have a system where people can do that. Yeah, I, I would really love to see that. I've I've worked with some people and just trying to optimize, you know, their, their RSP contributions to, you know, based on where they are in their marginal tax bracket. And 
so often I see that they think they're being charged or, or taxed at a much higher rate than they actually are. Um, so when we look at like reducing their overall tax burden, um, they're surprised by how little we actually have to do. So well, then you got to think about the future. Do I put into my RSP or put into my TSFA? Am I going to qualify for GIS and OAS 30 years from now? Therefore, I shouldn't put into my RSP. I should put into my TSFA. Like these are not simple decisions. They they are not, and you know, just trying to judge your own longevity as well um, is oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> when you start when you start working and start thinking about these things. I mean, it's just not something anyone can can really effectively do. Yeah, or really, even no. if the programs are going to exist by the time, you know, we're old What's and that? retiring, who knows if they'll even be old. <laughs> Well, just remember, CPP is not, you know, Canada is not the United States. Our pension plan is very well funded. It will be there for you, I promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if yeah. I could take us back to the conversation that we had about this, 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 this expectation that women stay home with their children. When we stay home with our children and we don't work, we're not paying into a pension plan. Or paying any taxes. Uh, or pay, well, or paying any taxes. But I think the key is, is to, when you, when you take yourself out of the workforce, there are huge long-term implications from doing that. And, you know, you look, you look at the number of divorces and are you sure your husband's going to be there? Is his pension going to be there? You know, we, we need to actually link this issue of labor force attachment and future, future earnings as a senior. Uh, they need to be all considered together, and they absolutely are not. And I think one thing that drives me nuts on that, and I mean, everyone can make their own choice about whether or not they want to stay home, but it kind of doesn't become a choice when they say, um, and it's usually in, I guess, like hetero relationships, uh, you know, Childcare is as much as my paycheck, so therefore it doesn't make sense. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that that, again, is just taking into account that the woman should be the one paying for childcare, whereas if you're in a, you know, a, ma a marriage or a relationship and you've decided to have a kid, why are those women, in, the, in this case, you know, not taking into account that their husband should probably contribute to some of the childcare costs as well as <laughs> their kid too? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we make a lot of assumptions about what goes on in a household that may or may not be true. Um, and I, a lot of this goes back to, you know, the 50s and 60s where women stayed at home, the man brought home the bacon and um, it was all shared within the household. We're seeing more and more complicated household family formations where income is not shared in the household. When people talk about the 50s and 60s, I guess just from like my own family of origin and stuff, I always think like, who was that? Because my grandparents were farmers. So my grandma always worked, um, you know, on the farm and didn't really understand this. When she came to the city, she would talk to me about having to wear skirts and she got an office job once. She said they didn't want me to wear slacks. I didn't understand it. <laughs> my grandma immigrated here and on, on the other side and she worked and not only did she work, she took on some of the child cares her of her grandchildren and also worked cleaning. So I always think that sort of that golden age is pretty, it makes some assumptions as well that uh, for a certain class, um, a, a certain race, a certain income, that kind of thing to actually mm -hmm. have a lady staying at home. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's idealized mm -hmm. and I, I'm not sure how accurate it ever really was. Well, it was accurate for white high income um, women and, and who have pair bonded with a similar man. 
Mm -hmm. Um, That's who it was true for. You know, when we had the women's movement in the 1970s, it wasn't about women getting into the workforce. It was about white um, privileged women being allowed to work. Um, Low income women always worked. Um, People of color have always worked. That that wasn't the issue. And this is, of course, exacerbated income inequality because, you, you know, you have a family like mine, a high, high earner woman and a high earner man who is pair bonded, um, living in a household, uh, and that has exacerbated um, income inequality. It's an interesting concept for sure, and there's lots of mm-hmm. nuance to, to dig into. Yeah, definitely. So I was just reading your blog and, and following you on Twitter and everything like that. I was wondering if you could maybe give us your thoughts on some of the recent funding changes either in Alberta or in Calgary, either in regards to some of the things that I've been thinking of, um, you know, the changes to AISH, changes to how property tax is split between individuals and businesses in Calgary, the whole conversation on transit fees, or even something that's been in the news lately about the funding of safe injection sites. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is what keeps uh, me up at night. So I hope it I yeah. know, keeps someone else up. Uh, safe injection sites. Like I, 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 I work downtown. Um, I don't work on main campus. I work at the downtown campus here in Calgary. So the, and I always get the name of it wrong. The, the, I, I actually frequent the lab in the building where the safe injection site is because it's quite convenient to my workplace and I go there. I've never felt unsafe. I've never, uh, you know, um, they're human beings. These are human beings. These were once fetuses. <laughs> these uh, were once children. They ha- these are human beings who have had some very significant trauma in their lives and are medicating with you know, a a drug. And at least when they go to a safe injection site, if and when they overdose, their survival rate is 100%. Um, I don't understand why this is even up for debate. These are human beings. These are lives. Lives should be saved. Um, Is it costly? Who cares? It doesn't matter. Uh, (laughs) Again, these are human beings. And the, the nice part about safe injection sites is when the people are ready to get clean, they have a place to go. They have somebody to talk to and somebody can get them into those services. Safe injection sites also make sure that these, um, they, they talk to these people and are able to get the benefits for them that help them as well. I, I don't know what else to say about that one, but let's, let's, you see the attack on safe injection sites from, from, from a very point. Um, and, you know, on Twitter, within the last couple of days, the former um, advisor to Stephen Harper, who used to be opposed to safe injection sites, has actually written a book saying how he was wrong, and he's been tweeting about that as well. So, yeah, that, I, I think that it's very sad um, that we that this, this is even an issue. Let's, let's save people's lives and remember what they've gone through um, and, and why they are turning to these, these drugs. And a lot of them, of course, were turned on to drugs by um, Purdue and the decisions that they made to make OxyContin one of the most addictive drugs on the planet. And I, I wonder about um, this conversation when we talk about addiction and we talk about safe injection sites and then just what we see on a day-to-day basis and how much of this is just sort of framed against homeless people as well, because 
there is addiction for those who either own or can rent single family homes or have a spot where they can use um, or participate in, in, in their addiction behind closed doors. And it, it offends me on a, on a different level because I just feel that we're harassing these people because they don't have a place to do it where we just can't see it and we're just uncomfortable with, with seeing it. It doesn't make it go away. No, and and I, you know, I think that this 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 is an important part when it comes to a drug supply. Those of us who uh, know how to use the medical system, and when we show up, uh, nobody um, thinks things of us. We are able to get um, these kind, these same kinds of drugs legally, and 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 consume them in our own houses versus uh, lower-income individuals who can't navigate the medical system end up instead on um, heroin or meth being coming around yet again um, and, and this leading to this crisis. I think that's, that's an excellent point. I mean, this is, this, 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 this is um, a representation of income inequality in and of itself. Well, thank you for that. Um, I mean, I know we're kind of of the same mind, but I hope that just bringing that to some of our listeners' attention can maybe start a conversation. The last thing- Well, and I think, the, 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 I think just, to, just to finish that off, the conversation needs to be about mental health. The addiction is uh, a symptom of mental health. And if we care about mental health, we care about addiction. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think like early intervention or more cost-effective ways to support um, mental health services in our society would be wonderful totally like if, if we could look yeah. at that um i was volunteering with Someday. an organization a couple of years ago and they said one of their biggest costs were funding um psychologists and physicians and it got back to the pay pay per use fee for use system that we use here in alberta mm-hmm. as well and it's mm-hmm. creating such a barrier uh, even for our charitable organizations to help vulnerable individuals. It well, was yeah. very sad. If you think about, you know, a psychologist bills out at $200 an hour, even if you do have benefits mm-hmm. at work, I have, I guess, a high psychology, I guess, benefit available to me. That's a thousand dollars a year, which I think a lot of places only give you about 500. So I have great benefits mm-hmm. in that sense, but that's only five meetings with a psychologist. If you have, you know, serious mental health or an illness, you're probably going to need more than five visits in a year. So my last kind of tough question before we get to the stuff that we're hoping to ask all of our guests here would be, you know, I saw that you had some publications uh, for municipalities and the user fees and and that kind of thing. So I was wondering if you wanted to offer any free advice to municipalities right now um, that they are looking to create policies that serve vulnerable populations or encourage um, equal opportunity for marginalized residents, that kind of thing? Sure. I, I, I actually give my advice to municipalities for free frequently. <laughs> um, I am sitting on the city of Calgary's financial task force, um, and this is, you know, part of the issues that, that we're grappling with. Um, I, th- what I think the biggest thing that I, I, would, I would say generally is despite the fact that I have written books and papers saying that we shouldn't care um, when it comes to user fees, one of the biggest things, that, the benefits that we get out of them is, of course, this immediate signal of whether or not we're providing the right goods and services at the right service level, and then they're all great and fantastic. 
uh, I'm, I'm becoming quite suspicious of user fees and the impact that they do have on um, vulnerable populations. Um, I love, 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 love the City of Calgary's low-income um, bus pass. It is an amazing program that is getting a lot of attention internationally. And one of the things that um, has come up, because I've been working on this BC Basic Income Task Force, BC Public Transit is a provincial uh, responsibility. And so it's the province that provides the, the support to vulnerable populations in the terms of a low-income bus pass. Because it's provided by the province, it factors into a person's total social assistance package, which actually impedes their access to um, other benefits uh, because of how it factors into the tax form. Um, so this, this provision of it at a municipal level actually has a lot of real big benefits that I'm quite fascinated with. Um, I've, I've had some conversations with the, the city and, and my project coordinator, Anna Cameron, and I are, are working on a nice, nice big sort of um, a partnership agreement to start exploring a lot of these things and sharing data. And, uh, you know, as academics, just by the way, governments out there, academics, man, you know, we work for data. <laughs> <laughs> you give us data and I'm not going to charge, like my charge out rate is $1,500 a day. I'm not going to charge that to you. Just give me data. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I, I hope more people take advantage of that because that seems like a really good deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> all right. Well, I wanted to end, I guess, with one question that we're hoping to ask all of our guests that come on our, on our podcast and it's more from a personal perspective since we do talk about personal finance on the podcast, but I'm curious as to what you think a lot of money is. So what would that be defined as for you? There's no income or wealth. Ooh, good, good, uh, good follow-up question. I think wealth definitely. What, what do I think is uh, a sufficient amount of wealth in which one might be happy? Oh man. I mean, I know, did you know, I sell a lot of those retirement things that tell me I need like $7 million to retire, <laughs> um, which I fundamentally don't agree with. <laughs> That's um, so funny. $7 million is my calculated number of where <laughs> I could fund yeah. my lifestyle. So. <laughs> if I can, well, see, I, I find that really hard because if I had all the money in the world, I'd probably still be doing what I do. I do. <laughs> Um, I might take more vacations otherwise. Okay, so what, what is, what is a, I think a sufficient amount of wealth is wealth that allows you to um, have a stream of income that supports your lifestyle. So, yeah, I, I, I'd probably say like three or four million. That would, that, that, that would make me happy. And, of course, I'd want to pass that along to my son, but everybody wants not to tax the snot out of my wealth. So, uh, we'll be fine. Don't, don't take that the wrong way. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you on the internet or uh, look into your research? Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, I, I, I don't hide very well. My Twitter handle is at Lindsay Ted's and I have a website and it's www.lindsayteds.ca. So you can see I'm not very creative. No, it's good. Then people and, um, find you easily. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances. 